It's great to see you this morning. It's obviously um, a tricky morning for lots of people trying to get here. So well done for making it. It's great to see you. Great to see so many students here with us. It's great to worship God together. So when we were worshiping and uh, Annie brought that tongue, it's a spiritual gift, it's a spiritual language. And uh, then Tim brought the interpretation. The interpretation of a tongue is often, uh, more often than not, is a prayer. It's Godward, it's God-honoring. And so we've been looking to honor God this morning. And as we've heard from uh, Laurie and James, we come before a God who transforms lives, changes lives. And we're going to unpack that uh, a little bit this morning as we look at the second in our new series, But for the Grace of God, as we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in the first century. And this morning, um, the title is, What Does Our Faith Rest On? And so uh, I'm going to read chapter 2, which should come up behind me on the screen. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And so this is what Paul says. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual truths to spiritual people. But the person without the spirit doesn't receive what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it's evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I think it's important sometimes that we read passages of Scripture The word of God is living and active. It's like a double-edged sword. It speaks into the very issues of life, into our hearts and souls. 
And so as we look at this passage this morning together, we're not going to unpack every word in every verse. It would be impossible in the next half an hour or so. But we are going to pick up the main theme of this passage and we're going to hear what God says. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak today. You're a living God who speaks into our hearts and our lives and into this world today. And so, Father, today, give us ears to hear what you are saying by your spirit through your word. Touch our hearts today. We thank you that as we've heard already, you're the the God who takes things that are broken and puts them back together. We worship you. Amen. So, when I uh, was uh, 18... My dad was really keen for me to go to university. In fact, he was desperate for me to go to university. My dad uh, grew up in a a little village in the Romney Valley called Ababargoid. He lived in a little terraced house. Um, It had an outside toilet, didn't have a bathroom. It had a tin bath that uh, they used to fill with hot water and have a bath in front of the fire. That's where my dad grew up. Um, I remember it because that house was their family home, and so I remember going there when I was young. My dad desperately uh, wanted better for me, so my dad wasn't able to get a higher education. He had to leave the South Wales Valleys at 15 to go to London to do an apprenticeship in a company called Woolwich Arsenal in London. And so as a young boy, he left, and uh, uh, it was tough. It was hard, leaving his family and everything behind at 15. Imagine that. And he wanted better for me. He wanted me to have a better education. He pushed me. He pushed me really hard, in fact. And some of that wasn't great. But he pushed me to pursue wisdom to help me navigate the things that I have. He was convinced that a better education, knowing more, would help me navigate life. Well, the worldview in first century Greece was no different. And in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, the letter to the church in Corinth, Paul is challenging, he's actually challenging a high view of wisdom, of education, which is negatively impacting the church in Corinth. Greek culture elevated great oratory, great speaking, highfalutin preaches. It highlighted and championed argument and debate and exploring new ideas and new philosophies of life. And so when Paul visited Athens, we read in Acts chapter 17, we're told, this is what it says, now all the Athenians and foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. This is what Greek society was like. This is what the world in Corinth was like. The pursuit of learning and the ability to influence people were so important. And do you know what? They're really important in our culture today. In 21st century Winchester. It's partly why uh, numbers of you have come to Winchester to study in university, and you're so welcome here 
in the city. But you've come because you, you've come to learn. You've come to expand yourself. You've come to prepare yourself for life and what life holds. It's partly why so many of you as parents are so keen for your children and your teenagers to go to good schools and to learn and to get an education. You know that it's going to be important for them. But Paul's point in this letter is that our IQ, our qualifications, and our knowledge will not help us know God. Knowing God is the most important thing that we can do as human beings in this world. And we don't get to know God through our own human intelligence. The gospel is counter-cultural. And Paul's concerned that Greek thinking is starting to get into the warp and woof of church life, permeating the church, undermining the gospel. Last week, Tim uh, talked about how people have their favorite teacher. So in the church in Corinth, there were some people who said, we follow, I follow Paul. Others said, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Peter. And some were saying, I follow Christ. And they were falling out. Their teacher was the best. The concerning thing is that Jesus was becoming just another teacher. For some of them. Jesus Christ is not one of many. There is only one saviour. And Paul was concerned that the cross was being emptied of its power. Paul is so passionate about the gospel. He's so passionate about the good news about Jesus. He's passionate about the church. And he's passionate about this church in Corinth. He's passionate because God helped him establish it. When Paul uh, turns up in Corinth, he proclaims, we're told, the testimony about God. And many people came to faith. Many people put their faith in Jesus Christ. We read about Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household come to faith. And many other people put their trust in Jesus. And so when Paul is speaking in Corinth, when his first visit, a church is established. And Paul is the one who builds in the foundations of what the church is really all about. Foundations are really important. I remember many years ago we had uh, an extension built on a house that we used to live in in the east side of Southampton. And uh, they uh, dug out, uh, we were ha- they were digging out the, uh, the trench to put the foundations in for the extension. And uh, they got down in the one corner of the house, they got down to uh, about two meters, six foot. And they were under the uh, original, so they'd already gone lower than the original foundations of the house. And the pit that they dug was filling with water. And the builder said, I can't do this anymore. He said, this is too dangerous. This could collapse at any moment. And so... He said, you need to fill it back in. So I've just paid him to dig a hole. I'm now paying him to fill a hole. And he says, so I've just thrown away a big chunk of money. And he says, we need to pile the foundation. So they drill piles down. These piles, uh, concrete piles that go down to find solid ground. And in that one corner of the house, they went down to 16 foot three before they hit anything solid. Because 
Actually, we can't build on something that isn't solid. For a building to stand under pressure and the pressures of life and the storms of life, it needs good foundations. And the same is true of churches and of our own lives spiritually. There are many people who start to follow Jesus but give up because of opposition and uh, circumstances and things that lure them in an opposite direction. And what appeared to be faith in their lives, what appeared to be real faith, had no genuine foundation. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is posing the question, what does our faith rest on? Later he's going to talk about some uh, serious problems in the church. And there are some serious problems in the church in Corinth. But first of all, he wants to make sure that their foundation is solid because he can't build, he can't speak into anything else if the foundation is not right. And like in Jesus' parable that Jesus tells about in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul wants to know, is our life built on rock, on a firm foundation, or is it built on sand? You see, the test is when there's pressure, when things go wrong, when there's storms overwhelm us, like James was talking about in his life, does our foundation hold? Does our faith hold? You see, days like that come to us all. If they haven't, you haven't experienced any days like that, let me tell you, one day you will. Many of us have experienced health battles. There are people amongst us now who are struggling with uh, battles over health, financial challenges, relational breakdown. And in the midst of trying times, our faith will remain secure only as long as God is our rock. And Paul's desire for us this morning is that Jesus is the rock on whom our life is built. And so Paul focuses on three things. And the first thing he focuses on is this. Faith that rests on God's power. You know, making choices based on wrong thinking doesn't go well. When I uh, went to university, my dad asked me once, he said, uh, how have you chosen the universities that you're applying to, the five universities that you're applying to? And... um, The answer was that they had first division football teams. There wasn't premiership at the time. (laughs) Genuinely true. My dad was horrified. If you're going to buy a car, you don't buy a car because the salesman seems nice. If you're choosing a church and you're thinking about where you're going to put your roots down the church, you don't do it because the worship's cool and the speaker's trendy. By the way, I'm not suggesting I'm trendy. (laughs) You don't identify a leader for a church plant just because they can gather a crowd. That's not a good foundation to build on. You see, Paul is saying our faith is dependent not on our ability or our wisdom, but it's based on the power of God. The gospel cuts across the world's wisdom. And it does it through a shocking display of humility in a culture where people elevated themselves to win an audience. 
Paul does the opposite. And so Paul says two things. He says, I didn't come with eloquence, with brilliant speech, with charisma, with personality. He's not bothered that some later in his second letter to the church in Corinth say that he's unimpressive and he's not a great speaker. He openly admits that he came in weakness and trembling. He came with fear. He was anxious. This is the same man we read about in later letters who often gets imprisoned. He's been severely flogged. He's been in life-threatening situations. And yet it doesn't seem to stop him. We find out that on one occasion, uh, on five occasions, he's had 39 lashes. They gave people 39 lashes because it was the maximum they thought they could give without someone being killed. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times. And Paul has learned that he can only do what he does as God strengthens him. He regularly knew what it was to feel weak. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about having something he calls a thorn in the flesh. And he pleads for God to remove it. God, take it away from me. Some speculate that he, he had an eye condition that just made him just unappealing to look at. Others have speculated that he had a back condition that caused him to have a bit of a hunch back. Maybe he had a stutter. But whatever it was, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul was able to say, I gladly boast all the more in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. He knew that he, no one was going to be convinced unless it was by the power of God. So he didn't rely on his personality, his charisma, eloquence. He didn't rely on, he says, on superior wisdom, human cleverness. I mean, really? Paul was one of the great thinkers of the New Testament, probably the great thinker. He wrote the book, uh, the letter to the Romans. And if you've read it, it is full of incredibly deep truth. It is a brilliantly argued treatise on what our faith is all about. Paul spoke Aramaic and Greek. He was a scholar of Jewish law. And yet the Corinthians only came to faith because he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed that Jesus Christ died on a cross for their sins, their wrongdoing, foolishness to Greeks. And yet a church was established. What are we relying on? What are you building your life on? What are you building your future on? Are you building your future on your abilities? The class of degree you get, your intellect, your wealth, your family, your Christian friends, your church leaders. Or are you relying on Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for you? Foolishness? No. It's the power of God for our salvation. 
Paul is saying our faith must rest on the Spirit's power. His desire is that that's what our Christian lives are built on. And when he's talking about the Spirit's power, in this occasion, he is not talking about signs and wonders and miracles. He's already said in chapter 1 that Jews look for miraculous signs. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm coming with. And yet Paul himself, we read through his letters and through the book of Acts, we read Paul worked miracles wherever he went. Paul isn't making that point here. Paul is talking about the power of God in transforming lives. Ordinary people whose lives have been transformed by the power of what Jesus did on the cross. And as I look across this auditorium this morning, there I see many lives that were broken and messed up. They were like that pot that we were talking about earlier, that were broken. And yet somehow God has put them back together and somehow their lives are more glorious. They demonstrate something of the glory of God. And I look and I see people who, people who, I know people who wouldn't even walk through the door of this building a few years ago. And a few weeks ago were getting baptized in this pool saying they're followers of Jesus. The power of a transformed life. And in these days, that's what we want to see. And if you've come in here broken and messed up and you come with a, a background, a family background that isn't great, I want to tell you that there is only one answer and it is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit working in our hearts and lives can transform us. Every believer is a miracle of grace. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a work in progress and you're a miracle of grace. Faith that rests on God's power. The second thing is faith that rests on God's wisdom. There's general knowledge and there's specialist knowledge. I remember I, I see a consultant uh, uh, probably twice a year, and I, I, when I before I started seeing the consultant, I went to see the GP had some issues, and um, the GP is uh, they're brilliant. If you're a doctor here, you are doing an amazing work. We thank God for you. But I went to see my GP and they did some blood tests, and the blood tests came back, and they were doing some markers on some uh, hormones, and uh, the the level of hormone uh, in uh, that in my blood should have been 170 that's about where it should be and it was I, I can't remember the figure now but it was something like four and a half thousand or something like that and the GP was like you need to go to and and I basically prepared the way and said look I don't think it's cancer but it might you know you're going to go and see someone there's going to be people that have been treated for cancer so so I like I'm going Oh my word, he said, you need to, you'll hear from the consultant in uh, a couple of days, it's, it's urgent. And then about two weeks later, I'd heard nothing. So I, I phoned up and I got to speak to the, I actually didn't speak to the consultant, spoke to the consultant secretary and uh, said, explained, look, this is what the GP said to me, uh, you know, it's urgent, you know, th these are 
the figures. She said, let me go and speak to the consultant. She came back, she said, yeah, the consultant's not worried. He, he's seen those figures, those numbers before. That, it's all right, don't worry. And the consultant was brilliant. The, the consultant knew all about that specific field. Specialist knowledge. You see, so while the point is this, Paul may have had little time for wisdom, human wisdom, but he's really interested in God's wisdom, the wisdom of God, the, the wisdom of the one who created the heavens and the earth. Human beings knew, they knew something, but God knows it all. And so Paul is overwhelmed by the wisdom of God. And so in Romans chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul is overwhelmed by God's wisdom. And he's saying our faith must rest on God's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. And God's wisdom, he says, is a secret wisdom. It was previously hidden. The world didn't know about it. And there came a day when Jesus Christ came and revealed the wisdom of God. It was hidden, but it's not anymore. It's a wisdom, he says, that was before the beginning of time, was destined for our glory. Jesus didn't come as an accident. Jesus came as the plan and purpose of God. In eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in the Godhead, planned for your salvation. They planned that you would be rescued and God would take your broken life and put it back together. This is a message for the mature. The way to maturity isn't age-related, but it's only accessible by faith and putting your trust every day in Jesus Christ and in the Word of God. It's a wisdom that's revealed by God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that searches the deep things of God. The deep things of God. We think, we talk sometimes as if we know God. We have literally gone and dipped our toe in the ocean. And it's as though we're saying, we understand the ocean. We know nothing about the ocean. We know the minutest thing. God, the knowledge of God is vast. We know virtually nothing. The Holy Spirit takes the deep things of God and starts to reveal them to us. We can only grasp the good things that God has planned for us when the Holy Spirit reveals them into our hearts. We suddenly go, oh, wow, I get it. How do you get it? You get it because the Holy Spirit reveals it. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. He's, he says that he's praying for the Ephesians to have a revelation of God's love. And this is what he says. I pray that God may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Have you had a revelation of God's love? Of the depth of God's love? Have you had a revelation that Jesus left the heights of heaven for you? And he went to the depths of the grave for you. And that God raised him from the dead so that you might be saved. However far you've fallen, whatever you've done, whatever baggage you're carrying, however low you feel, God's love goes deeper still. Not one of us is beyond the grace of God. If you had a revelation of the width of God's love, heaven will be full of people from every tribe, language, and people. We will all worship God together. Each one of us, we are all equally loved by God. We are equally valued by God. And if we... If we grasp it, if we get it as God's people in this city, we will be the most welcoming church. Making room for people of every background. Have you grasped the length of God's love? God's love is endless. It's not like a worldly love where people stop loving others. God's love goes on and on and on and on. In Jeremiah, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God loved us in Christ before the creation of the world. He wanted us. That is the most amazing thing. The God of heaven wanted you. If his love goes on forever, we should be people who love relentlessly. Love others relentlessly. Have you had a revelation of the height of God's love? How great is the love that God has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. We're co-heirs with Christ. We have access into God's presence. God hears our prayers as we sung about earlier. And it's why tonight we're gathering to pray. And I encourage you, urge you, come and pray with us. Because we pray to a living God who hears our prayers and who loves us. Faith that rests on God's wisdom. And finally, Paul talks about a faith that rests on God's son. There was a time... In the history of the world, sadly, there are still some people who uh, believe this today, that there were people who believed that the world was flat. They believed that if you went too far on the ocean, you would fall off the edge. And they had maps which uh, uh, they, they, they drew what they knew, and then beyond that, they used to write things like, here be dragons, because beyond it, they had no idea what was beyond it. And they, they were maps that just showed water falling off the edge, off a cliff edge. How did people become convinced that the world wasn't flat? They weren't convinced by a map. They were convinced by people who said, I've been there, 
and I know that it goes on and there's no end. It goes, it's a globe, it goes round. We are convinced, not just by a book, we are convinced by a man, a God-man. He came from heaven and he came to this earth and he came to reveal God's love to us. That's how we know because we believe Jesus Christ. God revealed himself in human form. Light broke into darkness. John puts it like this. So the word, that's Jesus, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Why? Because he was God. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. From his abundance we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the unique one who is himself God is near the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. On putting our faith in Jesus to save us. God's spirit comes and dwells inside us. He renews our mind, enabling us bit by bit to stop conforming to the way this world thinks. Transforming our minds so that we can live in a new way. Paul says right at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we have the mind of Christ. How do we do that? Well, we need to be daily filled with the Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and fill me today. Come and help me today. Come and help me live for God today. We need to be those who let the Word of God dwell in us richly. We need to read the Word of God and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate it to us so that we understand it more and more. We need to daily reflect on what Jesus did and how he did it. So when we read the Gospels, we read about how Jesus interacted with people. I tell you what an amazing role model he is for us. We need to embrace his attitude. We're told that our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And taking on the very nature of a servant, he was found in human form. And being found in human appearance. Being found in human appearance. He humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. He gave himself he gave his life for others. He calls us to be those who give ourselves for others. We, as Tim said last week, we view our lives through the prism of the cross and all that Jesus has done for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you recognize that Christ is in you? It's the challenge of this letter. Here's, there's loads of issues to deal with, but the first thing is, what's your foundation? What's your life built on? Is your life built on Jesus Christ and all he has done for you? 
It's my challenge for you today. You may have come in for the first time. Maybe you're not sure of your foundation. Let me urge you in these days. Get Jesus Christ at the center of your life. Give your life to him if you've never done it before. If you're, you know you're carrying baggage and whatever, like James talked about, the first thing I want you to encourage you to do, look at your foundation. Is Jesus Christ the rock on which your life is built? Can you say with Paul, and I'll finish with this. Paul says to the Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul was saying he hadn't literally been crucified, but he died to his old way of life. He wasn't going to live that way anymore. He was going to live on a new foundation, the foundation of all that Jesus had done and won for him. He was saying, Jesus lives in me by his spirit. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a great challenge for us. I want to tell you, I was a broken 20-year-old. I'd made a mess of my life. Gone to university, supposedly looking for wisdom, and got lost. Didn't think there was any way back. Didn't think there was any hope for me. But Christ came and transformed me. The power of the cross. And 30 years on, I still make mistakes. I still get it wrong. But I want to tell you, there is no better way to live. I'm going to ask the band and Luke to come and lead us in a response. Respond to God this morning. Make sure that your feet are on the rock.